0: Everybody doing okay? Good, good, good. Happy Valentine's Day. Huh? I wouldn't know it. I forgot. I came in. Everybody's wearing red. Y'all reminded me. I didn't forget. I was a good husband. Turn with me if we can. Y'all hear music? All right, good. Turn with me if you can to Leviticus Chapter 25 I'm thankful to uh, each one of you as we get in here tonight and look at this together now we have three chapters left in Leviticus by the way uh I would tell y'all to go ahead and silence your cell phones, but I know you won't. I know you won't. So uh, y'all start doing it on purpose now. Lord knows. All right. Let's look at this together. I don't have many announcements. I actually want to get right to it, because I do. I do. I know you all going to think I'm crazy. I've got the fullest intent to get through the end of Leviticus tonight, 25, 26, 27. Uh, and it will, it will hopefully happen. If not, uh, I will remind you guys, before you get too excited, that All scripture is God-breathed and good for us, and so that includes Leviticus 25 and other passages, and we're thankful for God's word. In fact, I want to point out a couple things before we go to the Lord, uh, after we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray first and ask his blessing on our time together. Lord, thank you for this evening and this opportunity we have to be together. Your kindness is evident, Father, in bringing us here. And so we want to uh, give you all the glory and, and honor. And we want to look to your word tonight and thank you for this kindness that you have shown to us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. I want you to, to, to remember a couple things about Leviticus which will help us set up and move through these last three chapters. All of this book is happening at Sinai. All of it is there. Moses is at Sinai. He has not left yet. They got there. He received the Ten Commandments, remember? He got the Ten Commandments. After the Ten Commandments, the people said, That's enough. We can't take anymore. The, the, the earth was quaking. The smoke came down over the mountain. The lightning, all of those things. And then the Lord spoke to them as for all of them to hear. At the end of those Ten The people said, no more. We can't take it. It's too scary. It's too much. And so they sent Moses on up into the cloud, right? And Moses went on up in. And so it's during that time that the Lord is giving Moses this. And if you look back to chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 1, you will see the Lord called, verse 1, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, the Lord meets Moses there and speaks. Then, if you can, just flip right over to the last verse. If you put Leviticus 1:1 together with Leviticus 27-34, you kind of get the whole picture of what just happened, everything in between. The Lord called Moses, spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses from the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So it's giving us what is happening. So if you notice in your Bibles, just about every section, I'll say just about because I don't like to be speak uh, too definitively. Uh, just about every section begins with the Lord spoke to Moses. So you see how uh, that goes. You, you can see it in chapter. begins with chapter one. you see it chapter four, for example. I'm just flipping through. The Lord spoke to Moses. And then you see it'll happen on many occasions. The Lord spoke to Moses. Each one of those statements, chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 8, each one of those statements sets up another section of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you get into our chapters that we're dealing with today, chapter 25, you see it, 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 24, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, and so each one of those statements begins a section. In 25, you will see it say, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, and then 26 doesn't have it. So it's as if 25 and 26 are the same section. Does that make sense to everybody? So you're seeing how those little markers are dividing up the text. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, giving each section together there as the Lord is putting it together. It's good for us. oftentimes it, it flows. It does not always happen this way. Um, remember that when, the, when Moses is writing this down for the people, he is not putting any verses or chapters in there. Does that make sense to everybody? They, these were added these were added in the 16th century, the 1500s. Um, verse chapters were added a little bit before that, 1300s, 14th century. The 1500s is when we have verses added even in the scriptures. So we're not talking about in, in the long history of it. So Moses is not adding that. So oftentimes we'll get called up in those. But really you do see these identity markers. It's like when we read Genesis and it said these are the generations of. In each one of those, there was 10 sections in Genesis. These are the generations of. So it is here in Leviticus. You see the Lord spoke to Moses saying, which reminds the people, if you you think about it, this culture at this time was an oral culture. In other words, the printing press. Y'all know when the printing press was invented? 15th century. So you don't have rapid reproducing documents like we have now because we got to Xerox. You know what I'm saying? Xerox is like Coke all soda is coke every time you run off a print you know a piece of paper off a machine is to give me a xerox copy so you don't have that until so everything that was taken down or written if there's going to be a copy it has to be handmade and so you don't have mass reproduction of things so what happens is you have one copy amongst the people quite often maybe two, and those would be read out loud. And so if you're going to read them out loud, then there, you'll find some, some monikers or statements in there that will catch your attention to put those things in categories. And so Genesis being read out loud, these are the generations of, and then it tells you of that one, Seth. These are the generations of Moses. These are the generations, and it allows an oral culture to keep up with the reading, and so it is here with Leviticus these things make the sections and it also reminds the people that this is God's word. This isn't Moses coming down out of the mountain and just saying, "Here's what we're going to do." This is the Lord establishing his people there at Sinai, and as I've said it before, he's not only saved them out of captivity in Egypt, he is now he is now going to to Be with them and form them into a new people with a new government and he's taking them to a new land. And so ultimately this is how he is establishing. it. So that's what this law is for. Here's how you dwell. In chapter 17 through 27 of Leviticus have been this, or what's referred to as the holiness code. If you're going to dwell in the land with the Lord, then you must be holy, for he is holy. And here's what being holy means. And we saw back in chapter 23, kind of the beginning of, if you're going to be holy, you must you must order your life in such a way that reminds you of who God is and what he's done. So you begin to... See what they do every day in worship, see what they do every week in worship, see what they do every month in worship, see how they establish their lives with these markers to remind them of God's goodness and kindness to them. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. That continues in chapter 25. In chapter 23, we saw how you order your days, your weeks, your months, your years. With these feasts, now in chapter 25, we're speaking of how you order your years or your life, if you will, with the idea and heart of the people of God. And so, chapter 25 becomes this statement again of how you order your life. And at the heart of all of this, which we'll we'll see, we'll bleed over into chapter 26, at the heart of all of this, the Lord wants his people to know that he is over all things. So remember how he called them out of Egypt. Moses, head up in there and sing that song for Pharaoh. Y'all know how it goes Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Right, all right, so Moses goes in and sings the song. Pharaoh doesn't like it. He, he doesn't want to get rid of the Egyptians because that's his slave labor, if you will. And so he wants to hold on to them, and, and he doesn't want to let them go. And so the Lord, again, through Moses, says let them go. If it's not, it's going to be trouble. Remember how we walked through in Exodus those ten plagues of how the Lord sent those and how those plagues aren't just random things that happen. They are dismantling the, the religions of Egypt, the multi-polytheistic nature. So so when they worship the Nile, he can turn that to blood. When you worship your livestock, he can kill all of them in a moment. When when you celebrate the sun, he can black it out so you can't see your hand in front of your face. And so all of these parts is dismantling the gods of Egypt to testify that I am the god over not just Israel, but all of the universe. And so the Lord wants to remind His people as they head into this promised land, because He's saving them to take them somewhere. He's reminding them as they head into this promised land that He is the Lord over all things. He is the Lord over all things. And He's going to do that by establishing some rhythms in their life, not just in the, the, the year or the week or the month or the year but in their whole years together. And so the first one we see we see, is we'll understand that the Lord provides for his people. He's the Lord over all things, and he will provide for his people. So it says in chapter 25, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your seed. And for six years you shall prune your vineyards and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you. For yourself and for your male and female servants and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. The Lord says to the people, now this is an agrarian society. Y'all know what an agrarian society means. It's a bunch of farmers. They live off the land. This is what their occupation is. And so he says... You plant, you harvest, you do your thing for six years, but that seventh year, you have a Sabbath year of rest. Now, this is in the same model and mode of wandering around in the wilderness where they're at right now, right? Y'all remember how they're getting food as Moses gets this. They wake up in the morning, they look outside, and the Lord has provided manna on the ground for them. Right, So he's provided for them something good every morning to eat. The Lord provides. And so he's providing that. But remember, on the seventh day or the Sabbath day, there would be no manna on the ground. They were to take what they need for the sixth day and the seventh day. On the sixth day together, trust the Lord in that day and rest. This is the same rhythm that the Lord is establishing for his people But it reminds us people, because you're now going a year without planting crops, without doing other things. You've got people to take care of, family. Ultimately, it's the Lord saying, you need to understand that I'm the one who provides you all things. The agrarian lifestyle throughout scripture is one that we see over and over again mentioned. Why? Because at the heart of agrarianism, of the farmer's life, there's a lot of understanding of dependence upon God. Because you can plow the field, you can plant the crops, you can keep the weeds out, you can do all of that. But unless it rains, right? You put that little seed underneath the dirt and you leave it. You've done everything you can and then you're turning it over into the Lord's hands. Unless it rains, unless something comes down that you are out of control over, there is not life and there's not crops coming. At the heart of that, the Lord is saying... Do not forget that I'm the Lord of all things and I'm calling you to this land to trust me. Trust me to provide. Trust me to give you what you need. And it will be hard to trust. Verse 18, like, therefore you shall do my statutes, keep my rules and perform them. Then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. Ultimately, The Lord understands how difficult this would be. How difficult this would be to trust the Lord. But not only that, he's going even deeper and further. Because not only just every seven years you give a Sabbath year of rest. Listen to what he says here in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven. Y'all know what seven times seven is? 49. Seven touchdowns. So that the time of seven weeks shall give you 49 years then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the 7th month on the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land verse 10 and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land and all its inhabitants you shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his turn his to his property and each of you shall return to his clan Seven years times seven years is 49 years. In the 50th year, you've had these years of rest, and now you have this ultimate year of Jubilee. Now it's not just keeping your land from rest. It's you returning anything you have gathered. This would include any servants you may have gathered. This would include any slaves you may have gathered or brought in. This would include any of those things you were to release them back, the year of Jubilee teaches us a couple things. One, at the heart of who God is, he desires freedom for his people. Notice what it says there in verse 10. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Y'all know that proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Do y'all know where that, that, that verse is in our country? Where? Where? That's a great guess, and it probably should be there, but it's not. (laughs) It is on the Liberty Bell. This is the verse that is on the Liberty Bell, which, that bell's a little bit older, but that bell was put there, uh, especially in 1830, at the heart of the plea for abolition, liberty shall shall be proclaimed throughout our land. Though that bell was rung on 1776, it was added then, This shall be proclaimed. In other words, it's this call that this land shall be free. This land shall be free. And that's what the call was for those in our country then, but that's what the Lord has designed for his people. That's why... Paul would say when the Spirit comes in, we have freedom, for the Spirit sets you free, right? And so freedom is what God has designed for his people. So you may accumulate. And there were other reasons why people would accumulate uh, uh, either servants or something there, not like any system that has existed in this country. It was not built upon race or any other structure. There was many other ways that it was built, but there were certain things about it. Let me just speak to that because this passage speaks to that so what about slavery in scripture right let's let's speak to this real quick there's a couple things i want to point out in scripture it teaches us this slavery in israel's days from leviticus 25 slaves were a part of the household or family they were to participate in the sabbath rest they were to be a part of the religious festivals they were not to be kept away from worship Jewish slaves were to be released every, after every six years on that year of rest unless they chose not to. And when they chose not to, they could remain. But on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, they must be released completely. If, as a slave, you were injured by your master, then you must be set free. There should be no suffering from the slave from the master's hand. If you were impoverished as a slave and you were sold or treated poorly, then you must be paid in recompense. If manumission or freedom was granted after six years, you would get freedom. If it wasn't granted for six years, you would surely get it in the year of Jubilee. If a kinsman redeemer came along, they could purchase your freedom. A family member could purchase your freedom from you. Foreign slaves who were fleeing from masters in other places or other things were granted asylum in Israel, not to be enslaved again, but to find freedom. Slaves were to show no external indication of slave status. This was completely different from what the Jews were dealt with in Egypt. It's separating it out. No branding, no, no other thing on their physical body was to be done. Slaves and slave owners were to rule graciously and kindly according to 2 Kings chapter 4 that built. There's no superiority in this. You see what the Lord does in establishing this when we see it, what the Lord is doing is he's establishing a culture and a place where people can not only find the needs they have to be met in many different ways. Some of them would sell themselves into slavery. Some of them would ask themselves for this. They would find their needs met and people would be protected, and freedom would be the goal. There was never perpetual slavery in Israel. It cannot be for life. Freedom would must come. And so ultimately, the Lord designs it this way so that not only were the people taken care of, but those on the what would be considered the least of these would be taken care of and watched over. And freedom would be the goal for his people and be, would be the design. And so here in chapter 25, that's what he's getting at. He's saying, trust me. You think it's the, the ground that is providing your food? Don't believe that. It's me. There is no, and let me go ahead and say this out loud just so y'all make sure, because sometimes we say things that are dumb. There is no mother nature. Y'all know that, right? It is only the Lord that provides everything in our laps and in our hands. And if you go back, just the very food, some of y'all had your Valentine's date night tonight over beef tips. If you go back, every part of that was provided ultimately from the Lord. There is no infinite regress. There goes back to a point where the Lord has provided this for us. And so ultimately the Lord wants his people to know I'm the one that makes your crops grow. I'm the one that feeds you. I'm the one that takes care of you. I'm the one that watches over you and your family and provides all of your needs. So trust me. And he's designed even the rhythms of Israel for them to trust him. For, him, for them to trust him in these things. And that's what we see in chapter 25. Designed by this Sabbath year and this year of Jubilee. I'm through the eight, first 18 verses. I got three chapters ago. Secondly, we see here is that the, the Lord not only provides for his people, but the Lord is who we worship. Every other ancient Near each Eastern society at this time worshipped the earth, worshipped the crops, worshipped the stars, worshipped the mountains, worshipped all of these things. I remember, I, I, I don't have time for stories, but I'll tell you one I remember, maybe I've told y'all this one before. If I have, just keep going. You probably forgot. So I remember walking through the mountains in, in South Asia, and we walked over this mountain and got to this place. And when I got there, they were sacrificing the chicken. I walked in, and i seeing blood everywhere and a bunch of squawking. I'm like, man, this is going to be interesting. I, they're sacrificing a the chicken. They chopped his head off. They're bleeding it out. I mean, I'm right in here on it. I'm like, man, what's going on? You know, I'm starting asking them. I, I'm i just the, the white dude from South Carolina. So I'm just like, hey, what are y'all doing? I'm acting dumb. And they tell me, we just planted our crops. And now we're offering a sacrifice to the gods. And in theirs, this was in the mountains. They said the gods of this mountain to make our crops go. So I'm like, well, let me tell you about a sacrifice, right? So we had a good gospel time of conversation, but that was 2016. This is still happening regularly. There's a sense in which other religions and other people look to the earth and to the land for their worship. And the Lord says, that's not what's going to happen with you guys. Don't worship your stuff. Don't worship your Land, don't worship your dirt, don't worship your crops, don't worship your livestock. And in fact, as we look over in chapter 25, verses 23 and on, he starts to say, You are to give your livestock to the Lord as an offering, you're to give the first fruits of those things, the firstborn in the livestock, you're to give those things away, not trust in those, you're to give those as worship to the Lord. First fruits. First fruits were the first part of the crop, the best parts of the crop. You're to give those to the Lord. The livestock, you're to give those to the Lord. And what he means by that, you would give them to the tabernacle and to the Leviticus priesthood so that they can do the work of the the tabernacle to keep it and keep the ministry going that is needed. That's where you were to give them. But his sense in this is saying, look, you give your best to me because I'm the one that's provided it all. I'm the one that you worship, not these animals. You give your best to me. I'm the one you worship, not these crops. You give your best to me. It's not the dirt that has provided this. It is me. So the Lord is the one we worship, just as we saw last week. It's the Lord that defines our life, not money, not stuff. It's not those things. We trust him to provide all of that. The last little piece that the Lord says is that there will not be any among us who have want. So verses 25 through 55, uh, he gives us that, 35 through 55, he gives us this call to give to the poor. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a soldier, sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. But fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him a slave. He's saying there won't be any among you, there shouldn't be any among you who are in need because we take care of each other. And we don't put any extra burden on those who are in need. We don't put any extra burden on them. We simply help them and provide for them. This seems to be common sense for us, but I want you to know, when we read through the Scriptures, Just I don't know if any of y'all do this, but I started this with my mom when I was little. You know, you can take the Proverbs and read a Proverb, a chapter a day that coincides with the day of the month. You know what I'm saying? So today's the 14th. There's 31 Proverbs. Our months that have the most days have 31. Past September, April, something like that. And so you have those, and so you can keep up with, the, with, the, with them throughout. If you read the Proverbs, note how many Proverbs, how many Proverbs speak to our obligation to take care of those who are poor amongst us. How many of those speak to that need? We've got ministries here that deal with this in particular. We're trying to help take care of those through our benevolent stuff, through through our ministries and providing clothing and food and everything else, how we're trying to take care of those because that's a call that God puts upon his people that has been there from the beginning and continues even today because the Lord says, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have done it to me. And so even as we enter into glory, the Lord says, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I needed clothing, I was cold, you clothed me. These things testify to the goodness of God's people and their obedience to him. And so he says, if you're going to live in my land, then know that there's not going to be needy among you because all of you will have enough. And isn't it neat how the Lord will provide everything you need? And how does he do that? Sometimes he makes you prosper. And sometimes your crops grow and you got more than you could ever possibly know and understand. And sometimes you struggle. But either way, the Lord has provided. Why? Because those who he's prospered have the duty, as he says, to take care of those who do not have. The responsibility to take care of them. We watch over them. This is the brother and sister Uh, even in our Christian language, as we watch over each other to care for them. Chapter 25 gives this sense that the Lord is in charge. He is over all things, so we trust him. We trust him for everything we need in life. We trust him for all. We worship him with our best because he's the one who's provided it all. We give our best to him because he's the one who's provided all, and we give to those who are in need, for the Lord has provided for them even through us even through us now a lot of this comes down to obedience look with me in chapter 26 chapter 26 11 through 13 are if you if you're underlining you know if you want to look super spiritual underline and highlight some passages in leviticus you know what i'm saying like when you Die and people find your Bible, they're like, man, they love the Lord. They're reading Leviticus and underlining it. You know what I'm saying? They're like, gosh, look at how faithful that guy was. He was searching out Leviticus for all these treasures. Here's a good one to underline. Leviticus 26, verse 11. I have said to you, y'all thought I was going to read it. I have said to you over and over again, the purpose in the Lord saving his people out of slavery was so he can be with his people. Listen to this. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I have allowed you to stand strong. I have freed you. I'm the Redeemer, God. I'm that one, and I want to be with you. Y'all see the heart of it there? Now, what is required for the people if he's going to be with them? He calls them to obedience, he calls them to obedience. You shall not, verse 26, make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figurative stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. In fact, if you have an outline of chapter 26, you have rules about these ver- there about how you shall not have idols. You shall honor the Sabbath and you shall keep the sanctuary. You have blessings for obedience in in chapter 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes, observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in the season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field its fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last uh, to the time for sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell. Y'all see. How it seemingly is conditional here. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then, and then he lists out all of the blessings he's going to give them. Here's all of the blessings going to come. And then in verse 14, he says, but if you don't obey, you need to understand that there will be cursing. And notice how he's using cursing. He's not using cursing. Like, like we talk about, I'm going to curse you or something like that. Blessing, the opposite of that is cursing. Does that make sense to everybody? So I will bless you, I will curse you. So if you follow after my statutes and keep my commandments, I will bless you. If you do not, I will curse you. And that's set up all throughout the Old Testament. You'll see how the Lord does that. Blessings and cursings will be pronounced. If you follow my statutes, I will bless you. If you do not, I will curse you. Here's what's interesting, though. And I, let me let me say this: obedience flows from belief. Y'all hear me? Hear me when I say that obedience flows from belief. I've said this, and I need to say it again because I don't want this bit of theology to get confused in our head. Obedience flows from belief. In other words, we seek to. Be obedient to God because we believe God is who he says he is. We believe he has done what he says he will do. And because he is who he says he is and has done what he said he will do, we will follow him. Right? We don't seek after obedience to earn anything from God. We're not trying to gain his pleasure. We're not trying to earn any salvation or redemption. He's already said, as we read there in verses 11 through 13, as we saw back with the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord who has already redeemed you and saved you. I'm the one who's providing, chapter 25, everything you need. I take care of your crops. I take care of those things. I will sustain you. I'm the one who's going to watch over the rich and the poor among you. In fact, that's my categories. You think rich and poor are your category. I'm the one who determines who prospers and who has need. I'm the one who gives All of those things in their place, I'm the one who you will worship, not your stuff, because I'm the one who is only worthy of it. Now, if you believe all of that, you're going to keep his commandments. If you truly believe God is the creator of the universe and recognize that this joker just came down and made the earth shake and covered Sinai with smoke and lightning and spoke to the people, they have seen his presence, right? And so now he's saying, I am who I say I am, and I have surely done what I said I would do. Believe in me. And your belief will be exercised by your obedience to him. Obedience flows from belief. It cannot go the other way. When it goes the other way is when we have major problems. When we have major problems problems I want to say, I'll, I'll say this now, I may get in trouble and I' plan on, but I will. We are Taylor's First Baptist Church, right? We're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are evangelical in our doctrines. We are Orthodox in our beliefs, and we are Protestant. Does that make sense to everybody? We are not Catholic. Today is Ash Wednesday, y'all know this, the beginning of Lent, right? We as Baptists, We as Protestants have never, y'all know uh, Ash Wednesday, you you give up something for Lent, and one of the things you give up was meat, you know? So there was a famous reformer who, this guy was a guy from my own heart, his name was Zwingli, started with a Z, any any last name starts with a Z, it's pretty cool. On Ash Wednesday to protest him leaving the Catholic Church, y'all know what he did? He cooked a whole bunch of sausage and ate it and had a big party and said, let's eat sausage on Ash Wednesday, right? He was showing, I'm free from that because at the heart of Lent is the idea of earning something from God. Earning, giving up something so we can earn some sort of favor. We don't need to earn it. We just need to follow after him. We just need to pursue it because it's already been granted to us. And so we're free from those things. So we glory in in the Lord. And so ultimately, he's saying here, that we find blessing through God's obedience because obedience flows from belief. But if you violate God's covenant, says in verse 14, if you violate God's covenant, there will be punishment. If you don't be obedient, there will be punishment that comes to you. If you will not listen to me, will not do all these commandments. If you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, verse 14, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, with fever. Consume the eyes and make the heartache. We're going to see all of this happen pretty much in the next book, Numbers. When they become disobedient, you have disease entering the camp. You have heartache entering in the camp, heartache from the fact that they don't say, they don't come back and say, let's go in and take the land. They come back and the ten spies say it's too big and it's too much and we can't do it. And that says literally, the people's heart broke there before. Them. The Lord says, if you're not gonna be obedient to me, here's what's coming to you. This is going to be what comes to you. The Lord is not keeping them guessing. He's telling them exactly the consequences of their actions. Don't we, isn't that like number one rule of parenting? You can't change the consequences whenever you're trying to lead your children. You can't can't say or make them do something that you haven't told them that that they're going to do. You can't punish them with something that you haven't explained to them you're going to punish. That would be a terrible parent, right? But when you know here's what's required and here's what happens, if it doesn't do it, then the consequences become clear. And the Lord, like a good and faithful father, is telling them, here's what's expected. Here's what happens if you don't have it, if you don't do it. But the graciousness of God then, we see in verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them, and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob, and I'll remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I'll remember the land. If you commit sin or turn from God and be disobedient, he tells them, if you will repent, I will welcome you back. I'll welcome you back. Then you have the conclusion of all of this. God blesses those who obey his word. Disobeying God can and will be disastrous. And God will show mercy to anybody who repents to him. That's Leviticus. But doesn't it sound like gospel? The Lord says, Or Paul writes in Romans 10. He says, if anyone will confess me as Lord and believe in in their heart that God raised me from the dead. Raised Christ from the dead, right? Confess Jesus as Lord and believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. In essence, that's what's happening here. How is it happening? The Lord is saying you believe in who I am, the God of the universe that holds all things in my hand who brings salvation to you but also causes your cops to grow, also causes the rain to come down. also If you believe that about me and if you believe what I have done I have come to save you and redeemed you out of Egypt. If you believe those things, confess them, then you'll be saved. At the heart of that, that's exactly what's happening here in Leviticus. We say it like this, if we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, salvation comes to us. Who he is and what he's done. His person, who he is, his work, what he's done. And the Lord is saying to the people, if you believe in me, who I am and what I've done for you, then salvation will come. You are here. You will find joy. You will find satisfaction. You live like that. You will find everything that you long for in me the Lord says. He closes out verse twenty, chapter 26 with these are my statutes and rules, laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Chapter 27 ends the whole book and it ends in the same way it starts. You know, I've said this from the start. Leviticus has no small talk. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, boom! Kill a bunch of animals. Boom! Live generously. You know what I'm saying? It's like There ain't any small talk in this, and 27 ends. It doesn't tie it up real neat, but I do think it's important how it ends. It ends with that issue of generosity of the people. Now, build it up. If God is who he says he is, and he provides all things for you, he takes care of you in every way you trust him, and your trust for him will be on display in how you live for him and how you seek after obedience with him. If that's the case, if that's how it works, then then you should understand that you should live open-handed and generously as a people because God is your provider. You don't hoard something in fear that you may not have it tomorrow. You trust the Lord that he provides for you every day what you need. Give us this day our what? Daily bread is the plea of the believer. Don't give us yesterday's stale stuff, Lord. That's not what we're looking for. We're not counting on the future and anything there. We just know that today, Christ Jesus and the Lord is sufficient for us. And so the Lord says, if we're going to live in this group together with me, Then we must give what is expected. In chapter 27, we find out what's expected. The firstborn and and tithes to him should be given by Israel. The firstborn means not their firstborn child. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that the first fruits should belong to the Lord. This testimony was given. Because y'all know at the Passover, it wasn't just the firstborn child that will be answered, but the firstborn in all things, the, the livestock and everything else. The Lord is saying, these belong to me. And so your first thought is that all of your first fruits are coming to me. That's not something that even is negotiable here for Israel. This is mine. The Lord says, you give that back to me. Not because the Lord is in need of it, like he's building some stash somewhere, because the people are in need of it. You hear me when I say this. We oftentimes misconstrue giving and generosity or tithing as if the church needs this or the Lord needs this, and so we're gonna give it. We're the hero in this thing. It's actually, Leviticus puts it, it's actually for your good that you give the first fruits. Because if you don't, you may think you're dependent on those things and that's where your comfort is. If you don't give of this tithe or these first fruits, you may think that this is what satisfies you. But giving of it is a reminder that the Lord cares for me and he's my satisfaction. And those things are not, are not where my joy is. So I give them freely. Surely, surely we see it. That way, when we look at our firstborn and our tithes, even that are given, we see over in verse 29 of chapter chapter 27, I think here, let's look at that together. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy, holy. So if you are not to give it, but to keep it, you are keeping what is the Lord's, what is set aside for him. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. In other words, it comes to the second point. You shall not just only give the firstborn and the tithes. You shall give beyond what is expected. A promise made on the condition of answered prayer is what a vow is. So think of Samuel, Hannah, she's praying, she's praying. And she says, Lord, if you give me a child, I'll give this child to you, right? And so ultimately, the Lord gives her a child. What this specifies is if you make that promise, you can't then keep the child. you got to follow through with the promise you made. This is for your good. But if you make a promise and you recognize, man, I probably wasn't physically or emotionally or mentally able to make this promise. And I may have overstepped my bounds. The Lord says, that's Okay. Then you follow through with a gift, an offering, a tithe, and purchase that vow back. The Lord has given it, but he's saying you can't make promises and not follow through. You must keep those vows. You must keep those promises. Failure to give what one promises is sin. Chapter 27, verse 6. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male Five shekels of silver for a female, the valuation by three shekels of silver. If a person is 60 years old or over, then the value. He's spelling out here's what it is. If you pray for a child, here's what you must give if the Lord promises you a child. Don't promise something you cannot physically or emotionally give him. This is just good rule and practice, right? We do this all the time. Lord, I do it. I'm going to tell y'all straight up. I don't talk about this often. I don't, I don't bring it up because it's somewhat divisive and it's just not healthy, but I'm a Gamecock fan. <laughs> I've been praying for the Lord to give us something for years, you know what I'm saying? I got to watch myself on this thing. How much more so in all of life is this, that we think it's just a tick for tat, a, a Uh, some sense of we give you a little bit, a quid pro quo. We give you something, Lord, you give us something. And we think that's what we're dealing with when we deal with God. The Lord is saying, that's not who I am. I've provided for you over and over and over and over again. Don't think I won't provide tomorrow. To do that is a lack of faith. And that's what Jesus says. There when he looks at his people on the mountain and he says, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has enough worry of its own. And if the Lord provides for the sparrow, how much more do you think he's going to provide for you? And if he clothes the the flowers in the field, how much more do you think he's going to clothe you? You seek God and everything will be taken care of. That's Matthew 6, 33. Seek you first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. We don't worry about tomorrow because God is always faithful every single day. We concern ourselves because God is taking care of everything else. We concern ourselves with one thing. That's us following him faithfully. Us following him. And at the very end, isn't it interesting, he gets to Leviticus and he's building this whole new system and he gets down after all these laws and just like all of y'all, everybody's all blurry-eyed and like, oh, gosh, there's a lot of blood at the beginning, all these sacrifices, a lot of stuff, these rules we got to keep at the end, all these things. And you get down to the very end and the Lord is simply saying, trust me. I saved you. I redeemed you. I'm providing for you every day. Just trust me. And the whole book of Leviticus, what we come away with it as Christian people, because remember, we don't simply read the Bible the same way they read it here when Moses gave it. We are in a much better position. For the Lord even says about John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist, the last one of those Old Testament prophets, that's right there, the Lord says, You who know me will be greater in the kingdom, right? The reason for that is because when we look back at Leviticus, we don't think, man, this is overwhelming. I got to do all these sacrifices. I got to keep all these rules. This is overwhelming. I got to worry about whether or not I got polyester and cotton in the same shirt. It's too much. We don't look back and think that. We look back and we go, thank you, God, for the sacrifice that you have provided on our behalf in your son, Jesus Christ. And all of that bloody sacrifice in the first seven chapters, I don't have to offer any of that, for it's finally and completely been offered for me. And all of these rules that I see here at the end that separate me out as holy, those rules now I am free from in the sense that I am free in Christ. He's the one that separated me out of me as holy. He's the one who's kept this law for me and he has kept it perfectly. Jesus has come to ensure not that Leviticus is wiped away and we go, oh, that's old news, that's old stuff. That's not what Jesus came for. Jesus came to ensure that the law, the book of Leviticus, and all of the rest of the law will receive its full obedience that is due and bring the fullest blessing that it brings. Jesus has come to ensure those things. And so now, how do we live in light of this? We follow him. If it's true for those in this age, that God is who he says he is then and he's already saved them out of the bondage and slavery in Egypt, if that's true of them. How much more so is it true for us that God has shown himself even greater in sending his son, the one better and greater. Even Moses said, there's one coming who's greater than me. The one who's greater than Moses has come to deliver us out of slavery, not just the slavery of Egypt, but the slavery of our bondage of our sin and death. And he's delivered us out of this and he's providing for us every single day. Not not some sort of, of, of mother nature in giving us these things, but the holy creator God is the one who makes sure we have enough to eat every single day. And he's the one who makes sure we have enough to clothe ourselves so we don't don't die of exposure every single day. He's the one who sends friends and family and loved ones to watch over us whenever we need it the most. And you're sitting there going, wow, you showed up right on time. That's not coincidence. Because just like we don't believe in Mother Nature, we also don't believe in luck. The Lord is working all things out for his people. And so... We live faithfully before him, and we live generously with our lives because it's not the bank account that satisfies, and it's not the bank account that provides. It is God who does, and we give back to him. I cannot believe. In fact, I'm a little disappointed that we've closed out the book of Leviticus on a night that no phone rang while I was speaking. I really can't believe it. That's the Lord. It's not happenstance or chance. The Lord has watched over us this evening as we close out. Hopefully as we look at one of those books like Leviticus, and there'll be other books in the scriptures that we see a lot like this sometimes, we recognize, one, the unity of God's word. These things in Leviticus have pointed us over and over again to Christ, over and over again to who he is. These are just brush strokes in a glorious picture the Lord is painting, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we look to him and we thank God for him. And hopefully it also stirs within us that love for his word. Because I believe, as many of you have said, we've walked through this together and we see some of those passages like, wow, I didn't even know that was there. And how encouraging really is that for us and how the Lord has provided these things. Hopefully we see that as well. But more than anything else, may we understand that our God is good, and he's been good from the beginning, and he'll be good to the end. And he is worthy not only of our worship, but our life and everything that we have. For he's the one who's provided all of it for us. For let's pray to him. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and the Lord who rules and reigns over all things including his church. And so God, as your people who've been set apart for your glory and for your purpose, may we live faithfully before you, generously to others, with an understanding and a clear picture that you are the one who has and provides all that we need. God, we thank you for our time together in your word and may we just, until you tarry, or until you come, while you tarry, God, may we continue to have these moments and times together in your word. It is good for us. All for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you Sunday.